Okay, let's turn to Romans. If you were here Sunday, you're saying, why? Romans 16. Romans chapter 16. You'll notice that out on the information table, there are three items, three Thanks to Dan, who I gave this to only like eight minutes ago. It's out there already. The first one's a one-page thing, and it's the beginning. I'm going to have to do this in very small increments. I call it a Targumic paraphrase of Romans. It's an expanded translation. Remember, it's a paraphrase. It's expanded. It's based on giving the sense, Nehemiah 8.8, and it's like the Jewish Targums that expanded the translations of the Scriptures for the purpose of teaching. It is not a translation. It should not be taken as a translation. Don't tell your friends your pastor did a translation of Romans. But based on the insight and looking back over the 145 messages that constitute our exposition of Romans, which was completed Sunday, in case you weren't here, the I'm doing this expanded translation, so we'll have that out there for you, but it's only the first seven verses, and it's going to have to be done in small increments. second thing we have is a partial biography for Romans, the epistle. It's about four pages of books that I either read or consulted during the course of our study in Romans, and it's partial. It's a partial one. Some of you like to order books. The third one is hyper-conquerors through him who loved us, and that's the last of the Romans Epistle Exposition Notes. So there are 145 of them on the website, 145 times three or four pages on Romans. So put that together with the 1,880 pages on Revelation, you got a book. Tonight I'm going to do an addendum on Romans. It's called Addendum Regarding Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27. It's been called a postscript, and I think wrongly. Incidentally, if you notice Brian Messick, he did a wonderful job last Wednesday on a Christological, pneumatological reading of the Sermon on the Mount. You'll notice that his hats are really tight now because he's gotten a lot of compliments, you know, now, you did a great job, Pastor Messick. Thanks for doing it, too. He stepped in and stepped up. Okay, addendum regarding Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27. Whenever I do a series, whether it's Revelation or Romans or Ephesians or John, I always have a residual amount of notes left over, 40, 50 pages. Some of it's really good, and I review it, make sure that I didn't miss anything. And this includes some of that, plus some new stuff. But this also is going to serve an addendum. I don't know, there may be two parts this Wednesday, next Wednesday. And I'm intending to start on Sunday. This is all possible, possibilities. A formal doctrine on something that I'll announce on Sunday. But this addendum will also serve as a bridge from Romans into our next study, which will be, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's the biblical doctrine of instauration, the biblical doctrine of instauration. There's a lot of things 
that refer to a universal restoration, apokatastasis, anakephaliosis, the restoration of all things. There's the regeneration, universal regeneration in Matthew 19.28. There is also the redemption that's universal. There is universal reconciliation. And there are many, many things that it's called. But by whatever name they're called, instauration is what it should be called. And we'll attempt to do a theology of the cross and connect it to the universal restoration. And it's going to have a lot of practical applications, too. So uh, prayer, please, for that, because that's going to be probably the most daunting challenge I've faced as a communicator of the word here. And it'll be fun, but it'll be difficult and fun. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity tonight. We pray that you'll open the eyes of our hearts so that our expectations of you will once again be exceeded as you are in the habit of exceeding our expectations because you are teaching things that are beyond our natural intelligibility and can only be received and cherished by the power of the Holy Spirit. So may we receive and cherish what we're about to hear. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Addendum regarding Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27, part 1. Romans 1, 11 first, though, because there is a matching Inclusio here, Romans 1.11, Paul writes, For I am longing to see you, so that I may share some gift of the Spirit, or impart some gift of the Spirit to you to strengthen you. And that word is sterizo. Sterizo. And I just want to refer to that at the outset, because that's one of the things that was my pastoral goal in teaching Romans from the very start. I'm longing to see you, says the apostle, so that I may share or impart some gift of the Spirit to you to strengthen you. And then in Romans 16:25 to 27, it is my contention that this is not only what is called a postscript to Romans, and that's kind of a slighting of what it really is, But I think that this could be written as a title over all of Paul's epistles. And in verse 25, it says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, sterizo, by my gospel, that is, by the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the apocalypse of a mystery, the revelation of a mystery, kept silent, For ages of time gone by, but now is manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about the allegiance of faith. Please notice that to bring about the allegiance of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be glory for the ages to come. Amen. And we may hit that phrase, the only wise God, in a second addendum to Romans. A.T. Robertson, the famous exegete, called Romans 16, 25 to 27, 
quote, the finest of Paul's doxologies. And on this same passage, Bernard Lonergan wrote the following. In Romans, at the end of chapter 16, St. Paul speaks of a gospel which reveals the mystery, hidden from us through countless ages, but now made plain through what the prophets have written and published at the eternal God's command to all the nations so as to win the homage of their faith. Romans 16.25 The mystery, he goes on to say, hidden through all the ages and now made plain is a mystery in the sense of a secret council. A Greek word has been used to translate a Hebrew conception of Persian origin, as is clear from the Old Testament and from the recent findings at Qumran, Qumran being the Dead Sea Scrolls, basically. He goes on to say and conclude, mystery means the secret counsel of a king. And it is in this sense, fundamentally, that it is employed in the New Testament. When St. Paul speaks of the revelation of the mystery, it is now made plain. And here's where the bridge happens to our next increment. As he does in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, and in the last chapter of Romans, and in reciting the hymn in 1 Timothy 3.16. We have to do with God's counsel, God's plan, God's ideas, that it is the divine wisdom itself, the polypokilos, the incredibly complex wisdom of God, as is said in Ephesians 3.10. And again, that in Christ all the mysteries of wisdom are hidden, in Colossians 2.3. And so this word mysteries is used in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. When the prophet Daniel speaks to a king, King Nebuchadnezzar, about God's identity as a revealer of secrets or mysteries. In that case, a dream, which was given first to Nebuchadnezzar, and then to Daniel with its interpretation, disclosed God's plan to bring down the kingdoms of this world through a stone hurled from heaven, which was to become a great mountain filling the whole earth. This caused great chagrin and anxiety, even panic in the king Nebuchadnezzar because he sort of divined by this that it was the end of his kingdom as well as all the kingdoms of this world. So mystery, that word musterion, as used by Paul, does not stray very far from the meaning of the counsel or intention of God, the eternal king. The command of the eternal God is the edict of a king, and he desires to publish this mystery now. It's a command of the eternal king with regard to his human and divine co-regent, Jesus Christ, who himself is the stone that was rejected by the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone of the new creation. The mystery is that which involves the once secret but now open intention of the sovereign God. Once secret but now open intention of the sovereign God. It was communicated by Paul in Ephesians, 
a letter that may well have been written by Paul in A.D. 50 from a prison in Asia Minor to an assembly of believers in Laodicea. That was also read in Colossae as the Colossians letter was to be read by the Laodiceans. This mystery, by definition, is the intention of the divine king to recapitulate all things in his human and divine co-regent, Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 9 to 10 becomes central, key, and of prime importance. This intention is far from a mere wish on the part of God or a desire. It is God's fully resolved or determined will. A will or a settled intention and resolution that ultimately will not be hindered, thwarted, or delayed, nor even its timing delayed. I will do all my will is the declaration of the divine king in Isaiah 46 and verse 10. The one who knows the end from the beginning has determined to sum up everything in Jesus Christ, who himself is the beginning and the end. Paul did not write Romans from ignorance of this mystery. That's why I chose to call this reading Romans with the light on. He writes in the stunning light of this revealed mystery. The thing that we have to understand about Paul's writings, every one of his epistles without exception, was an occasional epistle, meaning it was addressing an occasion or an exigency, an emergency or a situation that had emerged in that local area or set of churches. So he doesn't write theology. So from these occasional letters, we can derive a theology that is beyond comprehension. It's beyond human intelligibility. There is no way for us to grasp the depth, the height, the breadth, and the length of this mystery, except by divine insight. And it comes from Paul's epistles as well as elsewhere. And we have recently spent 145 hours plus together in the exposition of Romans. So Paul didn't write Romans from ignorance of the mystery. He wrote it in the stunning light of this revealed and disclosed secret. He wrote, or better, he dictated Romans carefully and not just haphazardly. He didn't even do that with Galatians. That wasn't just off the cuff. He wrote it carefully. He wrote Romans and he constructed it painstakingly like Noah constructing the ark according to precise specifications given to him from God. And like Moses who supervised the construction of the ark of the covenant according to the exact specifications that were disclosed to him in his meeting with Yahweh on the mountain. Noah built his ark with the knowledge that the end of all things as he knew them was near. I've taught Romans, hopefully carefully, hopefully paying attention to specific specifications, with a similar knowledge that the end of all things as we know them 
is near. And that's not a fearful expectation. That's what we call hope. So, Paul wrote Romans the epistle. As Moses constructed the Ark of the Covenant, it says that Moses saw him who was invisible. He saw him who was incomprehensible. He heard instructions from him. And he built the Ark of the Covenant and supervised its construction with extreme care. Every communicator of the word should take extreme care in communicating this mystery. The preaching or the proclamation, we could even say the heralding of Jesus Christ according to the disclosure of this mystery. Because God the Father has commanded it as the eternal king. As mu- just as much as he commanded Noah to construct an ark and Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant. As Paul wrote Romans, the epistle, knowing that the end of the evil age had been inaugurated in the death of Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Paul did not write Romans and discover this mystery as he wrote. He was not ignorant of God and he was not ignorant of the mystery. He was not ignorant of that God was imprisoning Israel and the nations in disobedience in order to have mercy on all. In Romans 11.32, he wrote knowing already that divinely engineered outcome of universal mercy. Paul did not propose the wishful possibility that all of creation may one day be redeemed from its present desperate plight. It's abject slavery to corruption. No, he didn't propose the wishful possibility of it. He prophesied its certainty. Disclosing that the groaning of all creation will end in glorious liberation at the disclosure of the many sons that God called into glory, that being all of humanity in all of its sequential times all at once. How, one may ask, did Paul know this already? I propose when he who said light shine in darkness in order to illuminate and revive all of created reality in Christ, that one also shone into the pitch-dark cavern of the heart of Saul of Tarsus and gave him the knowledge of the glory of God as it shone in the face of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, whom Paul saw and heard on the outskirts of Damascus in Syria. And he heard and saw him while he was ready and intending to enter that city to ruin the church of God there. This evil intention of Saul 
was described by the risen Jesus of Nazareth with a sense of humor as a futile kicking against the goads by a calf in a stall who is incapable of gaining his release but only capable of hurting himself as he attempts to escape. It was humorous. Saul, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? Isn't it hard on you? The intention of Saul to wipe out Christ was radically and permanently overcome and conquered by the intention of God to make Christ everything and to make everything Christ. Paul wrote Romans in the light of the apocalyptically revealed mystery of God in Christ. We've read it in the same light. That's the light that's been on for us. The gospel of God that is proclaimed therein is the gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God into whom all humanity is to be made. And this glory is destined to fill the whole earth and the whole of the heavens in a universal regeneration, palingenesia, and again Genesis, Matthew 19.28. Paul wrote Romans knowing this. Therefore, for example, all references to God's wrath introduced by one of his opponents in Romans 118 to 32, those references must defer to the all-encompassing mystery of God to sum up everything in Christ. According to Ernst Kosemann, who wrote a hallmark commentary on Romans in 1980, this word sterizo and I've read all the definitions from Liddell and Scott and Joseph Thayer to the analytical Bible lexicon to the lexicon, the LXX lexicon, all the definitions, Gingrich, etc. But I like his short definition. He said, sterizo means preservation in the trials of the end time. Preservation in the trials of the end time. And so Romans was written. I expounded it. We listened to it. We studied it with the intention that you would be preserved in the trials of the clashing ages, the clash of the two ages, which we concluded with in Romans eight thirty six through 39. These trials are the agonies of the agona, that is the clash of the ages, building one another up in love, speaking the truth in love, ministering, elevating grace. The other night, Ricky spoke to me. Ricky, you spoke to me, and I went away from there, and, and the Holy Spirit clearly, clearly, and plainly said to me, that's what it means when someone is a minister of grace ministering grace to the hearers. It's a ministry of elevating grace. Why do we minister grace to each other? Speak graciously, edifyingly, encouragingly, 
lovingly because we're in the agona. We are in the agony of the clash of the ages. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to lift each other up. We'd already be lifted. There would be no suffering. There'd be no challenge. There'd be no warfare. There'd be no bombs bursting all around us in the spiritual conflict. And so we speak to minister grace to the hearers, forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. And in this way, we are imitators of God. We live in a gracious mimesis of God. Most important, then, for the interpretation of Romans the epistle is the phrase in Romans 16.25, the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery, Greek mysterion. This word, mystery, or the mystery. Sometimes when a word in the Greek lacks an article, it's called anarthros. It's not articular with an article, it's anarthros, meaning it lacks an article. And sometimes that is even more specific as an identifier than without the article. For example, mystery without an article could be understood as the definitive mystery of all mysteries, the mystery in toto. And so we could translate it, the mystery. As often, an anarthrous noun can specify the monadic or one-of-a-kind nature of a thing. This mystery, far from being mysterious, in the sense of being inexplicable or unexplainable, is about God's intention. And what did Yahweh say to Abraham? Shall I hide from Abraham what I intend to do? He's my friend. And Jesus said, I call you friends. And so God does not hide from us his intention. And he reveals his intention to his friends. So blessed are you when you come to understand this mystery where God has called you his friend. So then, This is about God's intention expressed throughout the prophetic writing that we call the Old Testament, but it's closed. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.14, even till today, and we could still say the same thing, even till today. When Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But when the heart turns to Christ, the veil is removed from the heart. The whole Old Testament is veiled. When the veil is removed, we see that God revealed in the Old Testament scriptures his son as he in whom he will sum up everything savingly and salvifically. But it's only when the heart turns. And the only reason my heart turned was because God turned me. That's amazing grace. And he'll do it for everybody. He does it one by one, but he does it for all. So, the mystery, far from being mysterious in the sense of being inexplicable, it's about God's intention. 
which was expressed already through the prophetic writing. Jesus, when he did that exposition on the road to Emmaus, what did he say? These all testify about me. It's about me. It's about Messiah who suffered to enter into his glory. The theology, the logic, the wisdom, the justice of the cross. That's where we're going. And we'll take that way of the cross only if we want to follow him, only if we want to be part and participants of the divine solution to human evil in the course of human history. What a calling. What a summons. The Old Testament is all about Christ. You can read it, and you can read all about the offerings, and you can read all about the history of Israel, and you can read all about the Exodus. No Leviticus. No all the prophets. But if you don't see that it's all a testimony of Jesus Christ, the veil hasn't been lifted yet, and you're an Old Testament scholar that's a spiritual moron. And so, when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures in Luke 24, 45, it was precisely to see them, as Brian presented them the other night, as Christological, as speaking of him. The things he said in the Sermon on the Mount were the way of the cross that he would take by which the kingdom of God would come. It's all about Jesus It's all about Jesus on every page. But only the veil has to be removed. Throughout the prophetic writing, which we call the Old Testament, God's intention to recapitulate, which is to radically reorder and transform all things in Christ, is revealed. Romans involves the proclamation, or we can call it, The heralding, H-E-R-A-L-D-I-N-G. The heralding, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the disclosure of this mystery. It was not the primary purpose of Paul to reprove and correct the group biases among the saints in Rome. Though that is, as we have seen, I think clearly, an important ancillary purpose of Romans, the epistle. It was not Paul's principal purpose to promote unity among the fractured segments of the saints in Rome so that when he got there, he would have a unified community to help him in his mission to Spain. That was a purpose, a strong purpose but not the principal purpose. It was a, let's call it an important subsidiary purpose for Romans. It is not the chief purpose of Paul in Romans to argue with a false teacher or teachers in order to contrast his gospel with a nomistic law-based and misleading gospel, though he does it. And we've identified especially the first four chapters of Romans as a dialogue, a Socratic kind of dialogue in which an opponent does a lot of speaking and which we Christians have often quoted as being Paul. And we thought Paul said that. 
when it was an opponent in a dialectic. It was a dialectic of contradictories, which I hope will be reflected in this Targumic paraphrase that's about to come out and taught also in the future again and again, I think, from different standpoints. A lot of the things we've taught in Romans and in Revelation will will be approached again and developed, hopefully, with more enrichment in the days to come because these are important things. So it wasn't Paul's primary purpose to argue with a false teacher in order to contrast his gospel with a law-based and misleading gospel, though this was, as we have seen, a very vital subsidiary purpose of the apostle in this epistle. I think the salient purpose, the leading purpose, the primary purpose of the apostle, and more importantly, the purpose of the Father and of the Spirit of the Father and of Jesus Christ in Romans the Epistle is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of the mystery of God's intention to bring everything under the headship of his son who in turn submits himself and all that's under his dominion to the father that God may be supremely glorified by being all in all. That's the prime purpose. And this proclamation serves to achieve the aforementioned subsidiary secondary goals while going further, resulting in the glorification of the only wise God through Jesus Christ our Lord. By this interpretation of Paul's purpose in Romans the Epistle, I think we're able to see crucial correlations, and this is the bridge where we're going, with such passages of the Pauline epistles as Philippians 2, 5 through 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, we've already been there, but we're going again, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 2, something that we'll be doing in the establishment of a formal doctrine, which I will call the biblical doctrine of instauration, instauration, I-N-S-T-A-U-R-A-T-I-O-N. Kind of like what Romelli did in her book called The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, I think instauration is a broader title that covers a lot of things underneath it. And I hope I don't have to do 900, well, could very easily be 900 pages like hers was. But I'm going to call it the biblical doctrine of instauration. The reason that I made so much of the beginning and the ending passage in Romans together, and we started with that pincer movement and kind of stuck with it, sort of, but in combat, everything falls apart anyways. But we did, we did stick to it pretty well. Pressing toward that all-important center in Romans 8.32. Really, 8.31 to 39. The reason I made so much of the beginning and the ending passage of Romans together is because this inclusio has handed us a deeply significant interpretive key to this epistle. Not only that, 
the togetherness of the beginning with the end, reveals that this epistle is intended to be read and studied and heard and appropriated, not only in Rome in the 50s of the first century, but also here and now in the 21st century, where that salvation, which is so glorious and universal, is closer by far than it was back then. The world that existed in Paul's day was religiously and politically determined in large part by the existence of the Roman Empire with its imperial cult and its Augustan gospel, that is, a gospel that came in with Caesar Augustus, which deified himself and the Caesars, and it was called a gospel, and he was called a soter, a savior, and theos, a god, and kurios, a lord. And so the world that existed in Paul's day was religiously and politically determined, just like the world in which John wrote the Apocalypse, by the existence of the Roman Empire with its imperial cult, and an Israel largely hardened against its God, which in Revelation is Mystery Babylon, the Roman Empire being the beast. And the woman seen riding the beast in a horrific, graphic image. Romans, the epistle, then bursts on the scene of this world as the weapons of God which bring down the strongholds of a gospel of deified Caesars on the one hand and a nomistic law-driven gospel which was being carried by certain Jewish Christian missionaries On the other hand, neither of these Gospels, whether it was the Augustan Gospel of the Caesar cult or the distorted Torah and nomistic Gospel of Paul's opponent, neither of these offered an effectual means of liberation from the sovereign powers of sin and death. In fact, they only intensified the slavery To these powers. There have been many endeavors by scholars and commentators to explain just what is Romans. Quidsit. Lonergan would call it the quiddity of Romans, the the essence, the whatness of it. And what was Paul's main aim in writing it? And there are many attempts to identify just what the exigency was that called Romans forth from the apostle. But I say, whatever Romans is, or whatever the exigency or exigencies that it addressed, it certainly is the proclamation, the royal proclamation of a herald of Jesus Christ. A proclamation according to the revelation, the apocalypse of the mystery, which was kept silent And in Revelation, we see silence in heaven for a half hour. And with God, a day is as a thousand years. So maybe that half hour of silence in Revelation 8 spoke metaphorically of the ages of silence that Paul speaks of in Romans. So the hour, the half hour of silence in the throne room of God is illustrative of the ages of silence that preceded the words of the prophets 
which announced in advance the gospel of God about his son. But this is now disclosed, this gospel, breaking the silence in heaven, the silence of God. On the silence, Marcus Buckmuel wrote the following. He said, one way of coming to terms with God's silence was in fact to take it as a sign of his saving intention. That's a different way of viewing it. If God is silent in your life, you have to believe that he's present and that his silence is not a sign of his disapproval or disfavor of you, but it's a sign of a great salvation that's very much worth waiting for. Or a great deliverance even in this life, which is much more glorious if it's been waited for and if you'd endured the agona. He then cites Isaiah 45, 15, which reads this. You are indeed a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. The kingship of Jesus as co-regent with God the Father and as sender of the Spirit is the ultimate challenge to the rulers of this age, whether Jews or Greco-Roman or whether rulers in the heavenly places. And the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but not exclusively to those who believe, as we've seen in 1 Timothy 4.10. The reign of Jesus, the Messiah King, means the dissolution of the oppressive power of the Roman beast, And of mystery Babylon. And this dissolution means salvation for both the oppressed and for the oppressors. Something rarely considered. For this reason, it's not surprising that Paul introduces himself to the Roman saints as a slave. He intends to say an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, the king, the savior the Lord, and God. With a specific task of heralding Jesus' ascendancy to the throne of the universe, toppling at once the Caesar and the Torah from their thrones, indeed dethroning sin and death from their thrones. For from the time of Adam to Moses, and from Moses until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, death reigned, says Romans 5.14. In Romans 5.17, by one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. But how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of deliverance reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And then again in Romans 5.21. So as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness. And that's God's deliverance through Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Grace reigns through righteousness means that grace now is the government. It's the governing principle. Through God's deliverance, through Jesus Christ's faithfulness, resulting in eternal life, 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. This means that we no longer serve the thrones that he overturned. That being sin and death. The throne of iniquity and death. The king of Thanatos. On top of this, we have a parallel in Revelation 20 in verse 4. With the vision of John of the souls of the beheaded martyrs and those who did not worship the beast. We think of the martyrs as a time gone by. But I read two articles this week in which China has announced that Christianity is an enormous threat to society. That's what the Romans said. The, the Roman government said the same thing in the time of Paul and the time of Peter. And they said that Christians were in fact atheists and haters of humanity. And we talk about trade with China. I wish a politician would say, stop killing Christians in your country. Stop bulldozing churches, imprisoning pastors, and calling Christianity the threat. And Americans watch the stock market because we want to know if we're friendly with China and if China's going to pay tariffs. And all this stuff is just a big smoke screen for what's really going on there. Martyrs crying out day and night. And so we read these martyrs and those who did not worship the beast. It says they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. In a symbolic way, John's apocalypse, as well as the doctrinal way of Paul and Romans, we are presented with the end of the reign of death. Why a thousand years? Because Romans... Rome, the empire, had the power of death over people for about a thousand years. And with the everlasting reign of the Messiah, it was broken. A reign that began with a crucified slave nailed to a tree on top of Skull Hill, which was followed inexorably by his resurrection from the dead. Again, Paul is the imperial slave of Jesus Christ, not of Nero Caesar. The man whose number was 666, Neron Caesar. Paul wasn't his slave. And Jesus Christ means to the Jew first that Jesus is the Christ. That Paul is the slave of Jesus Christ means that he has the message that is authorized by him. And by the one who declared Jesus to be his son and his co-regent and to sit at his right hand until I bring all your enemies under your feet. Because of this, the Jewish Christian missionaries, with their endorsement from powerful figures in Mystery Babylon, with their nomistic gospel and their presupposition that law is God's means of rectification, Romans reveals that that's not the gospel authorized and endorsed by God. Despite initial appearances, therefore, the weaponry by which the apostle demolishes strongholds is not ultimately for destruction. 
Paul doesn't write subversively against Rome. He just doesn't even mention them, which is a, a slighting and an eclipsing of the Roman power altogether. Despite the initial appearances of the weaponry that the apostle demolishes strongholds, those weapons are ultimately not for destruction, but for the reconciliation of this world to God. So Romans sixteen twenty five to 27 unveils what Paul is up to in Romans, the epistle. But it also unveils what he's up to in First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and all the epistles of Paul. Even more importantly, and this has been our main concern, this is what God was up to in Romans. In the inspired monograph that we have just spent time studying, the gospel is, after all, God's gospel, which became Paul's gospel when Paul received his apostleship. God's gospel, here and in the rest of Paul's epistles, is the apocalypse of God's Son in his universally saving magnificence as King of kings and Lord of lords. Man's only true response to the divine mystery is adoration of God and his Son. And therefore, God will have found those for whom he was seeking, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And once again, I thank you for the privilege we've had to receive from you insight after insight in our study of Romans, which we've titled Reading Romans with a Light On. We pray that we'll walk in that light and walk in the greater light that you reveal, for in your light we see greater light. And we anticipate just what you will lead us into in the future, even as the Lamb leads his people from oasis to oasis and spring of water to spring of living water. We anticipate this with great joy, because even though we are the flock of slaughter led to death all day long, we are also those who follow the Lamb and find oasis after oasis and living spring after living spring. Help us, Father, as Tetelestai Phalanx, to be truly the ministers and agents of your benevolence to people in this world, to people in our immediate periphery, and to people that we meet whom we do not know. May we be agents of your kindness and your benevolence, ministers of your elevating grace, one to another, and to all. May our prayers be as Paul commanded for all people and for those in authority that we may, in fact, live a peaceable and quiet life. For this is the will of God our Savior, whose intention is the salvation of all human beings and that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. 